Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, I am joined by Will Welch, the editor-in-chief of GQ. Will started his role in January, promising a new era of GQ. What that means is focusing on what separates GQ from other men's fashion and lifestyle publications, and also pulling back from a more generalist approach. Focus is very in these days, if you haven't heard. Will and I talk about how the role of a Condé Nast magazine editor has changed. Hint, they don't give you a BMW on day one. But why the magazine is still a competitive advantage in a varied media landscape. We also talk about how men's fashion has changed from a subset uh, to an essential part of most young men's identity, and Will also recommends I don't worry about wearing white jeans to the office. I hope you enjoy. Will, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Okay, so you've been editor-in-chief now, I guess it was announced in November, but since January... We're like six months in. Yeah, six months into it. Okay. I know in your intro note, you said, you know, all new GQ. Yeah, yeah, totally. Is, new so, GQ is what we've been calling it. So what does that mean? What is the, what is the old GQ and then what is the new GQ? Yeah, so, um, you know, really we were, basically when I started, we were like, let's rethink this thing. I, I feel very strongly that the days of general interest being a successful position in the culture are over. So- uh, there was a time, you know, especially through the 90s and aughts where uh, magazines like GQ were in an incredible position of power. Um, I guess the, the, the 80s as well. Um, you know, it was a much tighter media landscape mm-hmm. uh, ruled by a handful of giants. And I think GQ and some of the other Condé Nast magazines were among those giants. And you could really make the claim that, like, we speak to American men full stop. And we talked to them about pretty much everything. You know, GQ started as a, you know, it's over six years old. It started as like a real fashion magazine for guys who really care about fashion. And it evolved over the years to become this incredibly broad general interest title. Like lifestyle, really. Anything, but yeah, but, but, uh, uh, politics, right. uh, all sorts of global reporting, um, style, lifestyle, etiquette, um, sports, you know, it really took in anything from this, like, you know, from the American man's perspective. And I just feel like in the, in an age that is ruled by the internet, um, this culture really thrives on niche and you have to be super declarative about who exactly you are, um, what you're about. And the more you stick to that, the bigger you can grow. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I said from the beginning is that we're going to be super declarative about who we are and who we're not. And that GQ is not for everyone. My, the GQ that I'm, that we've been making since I, um, I've been there since 2007, but since I became editor in chief of GQ and GQ style in the January 2nd of this year is not for everyone. And in my first editor's letter, I said that some people aren't going to love it. And that was like somewhat mm-hmm. controversial. A little so basically, bit. not trying to speak to all men. You you can't you can't <laughs> succeed in 2019. You can't successfully speak to all American men. That's just not a, a useful uh, uh, point of view. So who are you trying to speak to now? Like who's uh, the GQ man? Yeah, people who are interested in matters of fashion and style and lifestyle, kind of first that kind of lead with taste, and then I the. You know, what what we did is we said, what are the things that we do better than anyone else on earth? And how can we focus on those things? So I think, you know, GQ is the 
flagship for men's fashion in America. So that was an obvious one. And I kind of count style and li- the lifestyle stuff that comes with it around that. And then GQ has a very proud history of a certain kind of long form reporting. Mm-hmm. And we've always done incredibly well with that. And so that to me was something where our version of long form journalism is also something that we can wholeheartedly claim that we do better than anyone else. So focusing on those two things um, was what this new era, that's what this new era is about. Okay. So you've been there for a while. So go back to, you know, your early years there. What's the kind of stuff that GQ maybe did there when it had a wider purview that today you would just say, no, that's not, that's not new GQ. Yeah. Um, There, there was, uh, well, at the time, like I started at GQ in 2007 and um, the issues were also huge. So this was like an era of in- intensely robust, you know, advertising. Each issue of GQ yeah. was like a phone book. Um, Good so, times. Yeah, great times. So there was also um, just an incredible amount of stories in each issue. Um, so, yeah, more ads, you got to have more stories. Yeah, more, I mean, which is... It's a good problem to yeah, have. Yeah, very, a very good problem to have. <laughs> Because you got to get you, you otherwise you you get different shipping rates, right? If you don't have enough like editorial content, yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I remember in the dot com days, magazines were like literally just uh, printing like blog posts because they had so much advertising that right. you know, they needed to have a certain ratio in order to get the shipping rates. I don't know. Yeah, just to get enough content there Upside, to, and then to go opposite gone. all of those ads. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Like or one ex- one example that I give is that you know if the litmus test for a story in New GQ is um, we really have permission in a way to do this better than anyone else. So like one example is we we would do a lot of in the past we would do a lot of wine coverage, mm-hmm. right? So there would be like the new rules of natural wine or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the way I would do that now is make it. Let's if if we're going to if we're going to do a piece about natural wine, let's find the most GQ natural wine maker. So a guy who like lives and has some fantastic vineyard somewhere and like cares about style and makes an incredible wine. And let's tell his story rather than just doing like the new rules of natural wine, which I think our uh, sister publication Bon Appetit mm-hmm. is that's a little bit more in their wheelhouse. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So if you, if, but if somebody is like, you know, if if one of my editors is like, natural wine is a big thing, and there's this guy in Northern California who you know has this incredible property, and the wine is amazing, and he, the bottles sell out, and he he just is really like kind of has that new GQ thing, then he would totally make sense. But I probably you're probably not going to get like a ten page explainer on natural wine in the new GQ. Okay. So what is the kind of lifestyle coverage you end up wanting to do? Because I think the the purview can get pretty wide yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, you can start to get into music and all sorts of We do a ton of music coverage. My so, background is in music, so I, I started at the Fader, a music magazine. So music, yes. And I think so much of Not fashion politics. comes out of... No, we still do politics coverage. You'll yeah. do politics. Yeah. Yeah. We. Um, I mean, we do it every day, all day, every day on the website. Um, and have also been doing it in the magazine and will definitely be in the mix, uh, coming into 2020 as well. Okay. So you don't shy away from the Trump stuff. Nope. Don't shy away from the Trump stuff at all. I think there's, there's, there's one story that we did in my first issue, which was the February issue this year, um, that I think kind of shows the, the kind of thinking. So, um, it was a piece about sober musicians. 
It was, it was actually a music issue okay. and it was a portfolio of musicians who identify as sober. And there was a broad range of what that means between them, but it was everyone from, uh, Steven Tyler, Trey Anastasio, um, Jason Isbell, uh, Zachary Cole Smith, just a whole range mm -hmm. of people in all different genres of music. And what we were doing was looking at this idea, um, because a lot of what we're thinking about is like, um, <clears throat> the modern modern male identity and how it's evolved mm -hmm. so it's like yeah we're a fashion magazine but like underneath that there's a project for me the way i think about gq and the way we talk about it internally is about it's really a magazine about personal evolution um how can mm -hmm. we grow how can we evolve how can we be better people i would almost said better men but i th yeah. i think increasingly it's broader than that how can we be, be better people so we're doing a music issue and obviously there's this rock and roll cliche that like if yeah. you're a rock star you need to like you know sex drugs and rock and roll 24 7 the reality is actually different than that and so as well i think steven tyler went through that yeah yeah and but you know and <laughs> it's I, different, if i remember versions. correctly he's been on and off the on and off the band on and off the wagon and um but he uh and joe walsh from the eagles so they were like there were 19 year olds in it and then there were okay. joe walsh invented wrecking your hotel room <laughs> okay. and he has this amazing quote in the in the in the portfolio and chris heath the um, heavily decorated journalist did all the interviews, which was great because he handled it with such sensitivity because you don't want to just be like trying to drag people through their yeah. sordid histories. You have to kind of let them lead. But Joe Walsh was like, um, you know, I think they were talking about his history of trashing hotel rooms and he was sort of like, you know, if, if you bring a chainsaw to the hotel room, like it sort of speaks for itself. You don't, you often don't even have to use it. <laughs> You're just like, wow, that is end of an era that is advanced hotel trashing. <laughs> so speaking of eras that are sort of closing, yeah. um, what is it like to be a Condé Nast magazine editor now? I mean, there are mythical stories of um, totally. you know, I've heard some of them of the good old days. Yeah, you might have, you know, you can't choose when money was falling from the era. sky and the town cars were spinning on gold wheels. You can't choose your era. I was just in Cannes as one does, yeah. um, and I was talking to not a magazine editor, but someone from the business side um, about some of the stories of the Condé um, heydays. You know, loans forgiven, BMW five series. Keys just given over on day one of, of, of taking the helm of a Yeah, the lore title. is heavy out there. Um, it's a different time. It is definitely a different time. I mean, this time suits me. There were definitely people when, you, you know. You take the five series, the, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'd go with a five series. I'm good <laughs> on a five series, actually. Uh, I'd rather walk. Um, <laughs> um, Rideshare services. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's no, more of an Uber era than a five series. Totally. Era. There was a. There were definitely people when you know we had announced that I w was going to be editor in chief of GQ. We're like, dang, can you imagine like what it would have been like if you'd gotten this job X number of years ago? And I was like, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten this job X number of years <laughs> ago. Like this is really the environment for me. Like I embrace change. I like risk. And frankly, the this era comes with incredible creative freedom. The media industry as a whole, not just Condé Nast, not just magazines, is sort of like upside down. Things are changing so fast mm -hmm. that nobody really knows what's going on. And I like to try things. I like to, to um, I don't know, I, I just feel like we're really going mm -hmm. for it. We're really experimenting. And 
I think most of those experiments have been working. And I think if like, um, you know, if, if money were just like pouring in at clips faster than anybody could count it, they wouldn't want somebody who was such a risk taker in the seat. It would be like, you know, stick with what works, keep it right down the middle. And that's just not who I am. So I don't think I would have gotten this job in a different era. And I don't think I would have thrived in this job in a different era. So So I I like this environment. A lot of what you accuse about is about being modern man, right? Um, So, you know, part of being a man in the modern era is it's, it's the me too era. So how has that impacted like how, how you guys approach your coverage? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it goes, it's uh, so me too is there, but it's so much bigger than me too. And, and, you know, when I think of me too, I think of that's like, um, uh, inappropriate, behavior in the workplace yeah and but really what has happened is there has been uh broad and me too really kicked it off in a lot of ways um or 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 pushed it forward but just a broad reconsideration of what it means to be a man um and even just evolving notions of masculinity and when i said earlier that um the project of gq for me is much bigger than just like selling fashion to people or publishing cool stories it's really about looking at personal evolution and trying to encourage any of our readers Mm -hmm. man woman trans uh, non-binary whatever the case may be just anyone who encounters us um to be looking at like how how can I grow? How can I evolve? Mm-hmm. How can I be a more more yeah. conscious person? So you'll talk about like mental health issues, whereas ten years ago probably no. it, it's so, yeah. Men didn't want to talk about that. Totally, mental health is 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 a, is a huge thing for us. We have we have a um, a uh, vertical a GQ dot com vertical and a podcast. Um, the the vertical is called Level Up, and the podcast is called Airplane Mode, and it takes on like mental health. There's some of that like. Um, business self-help which is a big thing but wellness you know i almost think of it as like wellness and success and that's about personal evolution also um representation in the magazine there is a really broad view of Mm. masculinity what it means in gq in 2019 and we are also working on a few things um for later this year that are bigger statements in this space i just think it there's nothing, there's nothing more important. You know, if you're GQ, I, I feel like a lot of um, men in positions or a brand like ours, which is identified as like a men's brand, there's been a desire f- f- kind of from the culture for us to make a statement. And mm-hmm. so we're going to do that this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, there were people when I when I got this role as editor in chief of GQ that were like, "Yikes, bad time to be in charge of a men's publication, isn't it?" <laughs> and I was like, I, "No, I think yeah. it's an incredible opportunity." I mean, so we've been taking that. Sound like it's stuff, take, stuff. Or yeah, loaded. yeah, yeah. FHM. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so we we just take that very seriously, and I think uh, we there are a lot of stories. Um, there's a lot that we've done already, but more to come. Okay. I want to take a quick break here. With the mission of making the web a first-class platform that delivers results, Pantheon is the world's 
best web ops platform, one that gives superpowers to web teams, allowing them to take control of their websites and work in an agile fashion to win in the dynamic digital world. With Pantheon, marketers and developers deliver results by iterating quickly, learning and experimenting with their websites in the same way they do with virtually every other tool in their MarTech and development stacks. Pantheon powers over 285,000 sites, and it is trusted by thousands of marketing and development teams around the world. Learn why at pantheon.io slash digiday. That is pantheon.io slash digiday. Now back to the episode. Are you are you a magazine editor? Yeah, my background is as a magazine editor. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, how do you view yourself? Because you end up like, you know, the role of a magazine editor is far different yeah. today than it was even when you joined um, GQ in 2007. Absolutely. Right? I mean, uh, now, you know, you, you yeah, hear- when I joined, we had GQ.com, we had like one guy in a like in a closet, <laughs> right, like operating the internet <laughs> le- levers. Yeah, so yeah. it's a very different time. Um, but you know, now, I mean, you, uh, sometimes you hear like magazine editors, they almost talk to themselves more of like brand managers. They start to talk yeah. like that. But you're, you're still, like you still see the core of what you do is magazine editing, producing a magazine. Um, I still no. think of myself as a magazine editor because it's my background and that more than anything else informs my approach to the whole thing. But what I do on a daily basis is way broader than just edit a print magazine. So give me, like, walk me through it. But in terms of like how I identify, yeah. I think magazine editors still are there. But, you know, we spend an incredible amount of time each day on video, on social media, on GQ.com, on our social platform so i guess i said social twice but yeah. that's appropriate because we think a lot about social and for me especially instagram uh has been the emphasis this year so um you know it, it is way broader than just the print magazine and part of what's fun is that like and and you know the in terms of a lot of what we do involves um uh, celebrity and involves mm-hmm. fashion shoots and all this stuff that does kind of like emanate out from the print magazine um but what's exciting is to think about those things in concert. So um, we don't really think about like a big, some big like like magazine move that we're making without thinking about how it's going to land on GQ.com. What's the video piece? In a lot of ways, those platforms like sort of back, in a backwards, they inform. It's like often the magazine, the print mm-hmm. content comes first, but we're making the decisions about print while thinking about how is this going to land on video, how is this going to land mm-hmm. digitally. And then there's also all kinds of stuff that we do that is just video exclusive. It doesn't come from the print magazine. And same with GQ.com and the social feeds. But the print is still incredibly important. Absolutely, yeah. So explain, I mean, you know, Conde sold off a few uh, titles, um, and obviously a lot of the, the print magazine industry is going through a lot of change. Yeah. I- explain how you view the sort of centrality of its role as far as GQ as a, a brand. I hate talking about the brand, but like, I mean, that's yeah. what it is. You're expressing it in video, you're expressing it on Instagram, you're yeah. expressing it in various different ways. Yeah. I think the, um, the, the truth is that there's a, there's something really special still about having print. So there are, you know, count actually counting you literally can't count them there are countless media brands out there that are wholly digital um and we compete with all them if you just like cut off the if you ignore print and just look at our our 
digital's you know the scale of it the amount of digital exclusive stories we publish every day we really are a, a robust you know digital media brand mm-hmm. um but the existence of the print magazine really uh distinguishes distinguishes us from a lot of people out there and the truth is that it also allows us to do all kinds of things that digital only brands can't do and that includes working with some of the best photographers in the world right. that includes working with um getting like real time and investment from um some of the biggest names in the world whether that's an actor or a musician or a politician you know the allure of print for those guys is still really strong so um it still feels central to what we do even though we do so much more than just make a print magazine Mm -hmm. and even though gq.com is so much more than just us putting our print content online um so because of that it it it, print still gives us a huge advantage i think gq is a luxury product we don't just like cover luxury fashion we are ourselves a luxury product Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is anchored in the robust print magazine so explain uh what you're doing on instagram and whether that i mean obviously instagram has a a central role when it particularly when it comes to fashion yeah um it's kind of a dominant in that area totally as a as a fashion magazine as a style magazine as a lifestyle magazine um our uh, gq as i've mentioned earlier has a long history of great reporting right uh some of the best writers in the country working for us um that's a proud history that i take very seriously and i think that we've been honoring this year but a lot of what we do is visually driven and um also the way our um demographic works uh instagram is like really in the sweet spot for us so um what i've been doing what's been new this year since since um i started as editor-in-chief is just really trying to think platform first so I think print, you know, media brands that started as print that a decade ago were print magazines. There were, there were, there was a period there where a lot of what we did is sort of fire hose this content that we made for the print magazine across whatever the platform of the day was. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I've been pushing the team to start thinking platform first. So, um, I had this, I noticed that when I would be on, I would be using Instagram myself on my personal account and I would be on Instagram stories, which has been just a huge, um, you know, it merged as like, it's, I think of Instagram stories as its own platform. There's the mm-hmm. Instagram feed and there's Instagram stories. When I was on Instagram stories, I would, it, Instagram stories pulls you from people you follow it just pulls you from one to the next seamlessly and so i would be like watching stories posted by a friend of mine and then by some you know musician that i follow and then it would take me to the gq one and the gq one would be this like all this really incredible polished stuff of the sort that like kind of ass magazines make that gq yeah. prides ourselves on making but it would just like be completely jarring on instagram stories which is this very incredibly exciting intimate raw medium. Mm-hmm. So my challenge to the team was how can we find an expression of GQ for Instagram stories that is raw, like all the great, all the best content on Instagram stories. I mean, mm-hmm. what's so cool about it is you get to be on, um, you know, whatever you get to like have morning coffee with that celebrity or whatever the case may be, right. like watch their dog run across the living room. And then all of a sudden you get to GQ and it's like this beautiful, 
fashion, you know, high production value yeah. fashion picture. It just felt off. So it was like, let's find a new expression. So we've been trying to think like, what is Twitter? What what is Twitter? How is it being used? Like, like what is the conversation and how can we enter it as GQ, but according to the terms of that platform? But also, I mean, Instagram in some ways is competitive, right? I mean, in, in that, uh, like, not on the long-form journalism side, yeah. but in, you know... If, oh, because it measures man, likes? Well, no. If, if you're, uh, you know, a GQ guy, man, whatever. Um, person. Person. Yeah. You're using you're you you can use Instagram in order to curate your lifestyle, fashion, and yeah. all sorts of different things. I mean, does it does it change the role? I mean, because it's so dominant in in so many people's lives yeah. at this point. Does it change the sort of approach at all from GQ or no? I just um, I don't know if it changed our approach. I just have been pushing the team and spending a lot of time myself thinking of like what is our expression. Mm. on instagram because it's different it can't just be well we we do the best men's fashion on earth so let's just post it on instagram like i that was we were falling short when that's what we were doing mm -hmm. so you had we had to figure out how to find a dynamic mix so I'll, I'll give you an example that um uh you know sometimes when you describe these things in words off the platform it sounds a little silly but whatever whatever it's a okay. podcast we yeah. gotta go with what we got yeah yeah so <laughs> we started this um uh, uh, part of part of what our so we have like a really rabid uh, fashion audience and um, we started this thing called the big fit of the day fit is short for outfit okay like like I said we're going in here you yeah, ready all right so the big fit of the day is like some person in the culture and it could have been like um, uh, somebody wearing something funny standing behind Mitch McConnell on you know C-SPAN or something or it could be a celebrity walking out of who got photographed walking out of the Chateau Marmont. It could have been, I don't know, Samuel L. Jackson wearing something wild on the red carpet. It could have been um, a model who got sent down one of the runways in, in Paris. The big fit of the day is just like the, the, the fun, funny, awesome menswear outfit of the day. Okay. And we could post like one NBA every day. Draft. NBA draft. NBA draft, 100%. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and... The quality of the picture, it's often, you know, like some bad paparazzi picture or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Um, but that is like the kind of stuff that our audience eats up. And yeah. that's something that we can serve up every day on Instagram. It's It kind of comes directly from the conversations in the in the office. Mm -hmm. somebody, would somebody would find some picture online and be like, wow, big fit from Sean Penn today. <laughs> so has your competitive set at all changed when it comes to like some of like the streetwear publications? Um, I mean, do you look at them as, you know, like high stability and hype beasts and maybe even complex to a degree? I mean, the, the people that sort of started in sneakers, yeah. really, and I feel like sneakers, tell me if I'm wrong, but they seem like the sort of gateway drug for like young men in fashion these days. Totally. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's incredible. If you... Um if you hang out with some some young men ages ten to thirteen, I don't. I I have friends who have kids that age. They their like culture, yeah, is like Yeezys and rare Nikes and Supreme. Like that's what they're into. 
And I mean, it's it's actually really wild and very new. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, does that change I mean, things for you? Absolutely, it it totally changed changed the landscape because um, hype beast and high snobiety, especially as a lot of like magazines that you would traditionally think of as GQ's competition, to the extent that 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 they were competition, those have closed or become mm-hmm. fairly irrelevant. And high snobiety and hype beast are totally relevant. So um yeah, they they're absolutely like um players in our world. Mm-hmm. I don't really think of them as competition and like check for them every day and hope for bad headlines for them. And <laughs> I really think like a robust media environment um around fashion and men's fashion is yeah. just good for GQ. So I actually I know those guys and I root for them. Um, I would imagine that mm-hmm. they they root for me as well. Um, and well, I mean, men's fashion as a whole. Let's just stay on that for for yeah. the last bit. But Surgeon. it's changed quite a bit. Like, um, it used to be. I mean, look, when I grew up, like you know, there was a certain group of of males who were into fashion, but it was it was a smaller group. It mm-hmm. was like you know, it, was, it wasn't now because of. Um, I think probably because of sneakers and streetwear and stuff like yep. this, it is a very, I see like, and the NBA, mm-hmm. like, yes, remember like the NBA, Allen Iverson used to, they had to put a rule in yep. that you had to dress up on the sidelines because like, you know, when they weren't playing, he was wearing they, baggy jeans, they were wearing, you know, or sweatpants or yep. something like this. And now like the, the walk to the locker room is the catwalk and everything like this. Absolutely. To, you know, Harden and Westbrook with these crazy outfits. Totally. Um, it's just so much more of a mainstream part of, I hate the term, like the culture. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. And it's been really interesting for me because when I got to GQ in 2007, what we were doing was explaining, telling men how to get dressed, like explaining the basics, <laughs> how a suit should fit, how, what tie goes with what shirt. Here's the tradition. This is what the tradition of Italian suiting is like versus the tradition of British suiting versus the tradition of American suiting. I mean, my job when I got hired at GQ was associate editor focused on style stuff. And that's what I did every day is write that, write those like tips. It was like how to for men. And it was it was really like the basics of how to get dressed. And we did it every single day. Didn't know how to dress. No, they had no clue. And we did it every day, every issue. And now men's fashion has first of all men know how to get dressed and their taste has like become really advanced in this stuff the men's fashion space in general has gotten like incredibly dynamic and expressive and this has gone from being like you're either in a very small subculture of men who cared about fashion or gq was telling you how to just like Mm -hmm. look okay at the office and now we've gotten to this place where it is part of the fabric of pop culture. You know, if you think about the... But is that a challenge coming from the, you know, Italian suits side versus the sneakers side? Like, how do you cater to both sides? I mean, for me, it's natural because I uh, uh, I was born in 1981. I was a teen. I was like a tween. Um, the sneaker thing all took shape, starting with Air Jordans when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. So that was like completely, um, uh, I was just of that generation. Like as, as, as I was growing up, the sneaker space was becoming a thing. So for me, it's just like part of my, and you see the luxury, you know, I mean, it's like chunky sneakers are are being sold by every single, you know, 
Gucci, Hilo. Balenciaga, all Doesn't all those. So yeah, so then now the 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 high fashion houses have gotten in the mix on this like kind of streetwear thing. And then when I got to GQ 12 years ago, I learned about fashion. I learned about tailoring. I learned about all that stuff. So for me, it's kind of like, it's kind of natural to be dealing with streetwear, to be dealing with tailoring and then all this fusion that's happening between the two. Um, but the other thing that is really a position of power for GQ, because we've been covering this and tracking it and really a central part of it from the beginning is now for and this is, it feels obvious now, but if you if you go back to 2007, it just simply wasn't the case. Now being stylish is part of being successful yeah. for men. And I, like I said, it may be hard to remember a time where that just wasn't part of the I deal. Do. 2007, I that was not part of the deal. <laughs> you could be an NBA superstar I mean, and not and just be in sweatpants all the time, focused on basketball. Now it's just grunge absolutely era wasn't not that the case. long ago for me. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I no, remember it. Same. <laughs> Um, so it's very, very different. And, and, it and must- that, like I said, that's a position of power for us because we've been we we've been a part of that shift and we've been covering it. And that there came a time where all those guys they just were dying to be in GQ, and it is frankly good for their brand and good for their bottom line to have our sign off. And we have you know maintained that authority. Okay. So final thing, big men's fashion trend for the summer. What should the stylish or aspiring stylish or even stylish curious man <laughs> like myself um, actually be uh, be into this summer I um, I'm, I'm I always just kind of like uh, go back to something personal for that okay. and I just every day it got really hot in New York City this week <laughs> it's hot now and I've, I've been wearing white <laughs> jeans every day okay white and jeans. It, ju- it just feels good like they look they're cool cool they're okay for the office. I think so. I mean for my office they're def- they're <laughs> definitely okay. And um yeah, I don't know. They just feel like a little bit sharp and dressy. Okay. Next Friday I'm going to try the white jeans. It's well. yeah, go for it. It's funny because the we've sort of gotten out of the Cuz um, I came from Canada. I wore them there, but I was like I'm not wearing these to the office. Wear them to the office. See uh, how you feel. I'm doing it. We have like it's one thing that's been one central part of this kind of like new GQ is we've gotten a little bit out of the game of like doing a lot of advice on how to dress. So it's more like if you pick up an issue of GQ, it's almost like a, I'm trying to think of the right word, like a mood board or something of all these different ways to dress. But we kind of don't do the like, do this, don't do that. Well, the rules have kind of gone out the window. The rules have gone out the window and like, you don't. I just said, oh, how about white jeans for the summer? You're like, you don't need to go buy a pair. You already have a pair. You're like, I, I have a pair and I wore them in can, and that makes total sense. And yeah. yeah, I'll try them at the office. So you might see those in GQ and then try it, but we're not. The we just don't do the prescriptive thing anymore. And I feel like it's it's a much more modern place to be. All right. Well, thanks so much. Sure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you all for listening. This week's episode was produced by Gianna Capadona. I hope you head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This helps us uh, get discovered by new people. If you have any feedback, you can always uh, email me. I am brian at digiday.com or you can tweet me. I am at bmarcy on the Twitter. Um, Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.